Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful, God, that you would give us your only son, that we could come before you because a sacrifice has been made. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your word, Lord, a heart of humility to receive what you would have, Lord, that our hearts would be changed, that we'd be more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So I've been given the task to talk about the topic of fasting as we go into our church-wide prayer and fast. So what comes to mind when you hear the word fasting? What immediately jumps to your attention? We don't talk about fasting much, and it's, it's one of those odd topics that doesn't quite fit with our consumer-driven, consumption-crazy culture. In his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, Donald Whitney writes about one man's experience with fasting. This man writes, I fasted on several occasions and nothing happened. I just got hungry. Several years ago, I heard a couple pastors discussing, discussing fasting. They said it was commanded in the Bible and should be practiced by every Christian. So this man continues to share his experience and how even though he put it off for a while, he decided to give it a shot. He, he said, I put it off for a while. I mustered enough courage to try it again. That morning, I couldn't go to the breakfast table with my family because I feared that I wouldn't have the willpower to resist the food, so I went straight to work. The coffee break was unbearable, and I had to tell a little white lie why I couldn't participate. All I could think about was how hungry I was getting. And then I thought, well, if I ever get through this day, I'll never try this again. The afternoon was worse. It was hard to concentrate on work with a growling stomach. And this man, after he came home from work, he skipped dinner, powered through until midnight, but when the clock struck 12 a.m., he immediately dug into food. And he concludes by writing, I don't think that day of fasting helped me one bit. Maybe that's the perception you have when we, when we talk about fasting, that you're afraid that nothing's going to happen except you getting hungry. Or maybe you're afraid to try fasting because you're afraid, well, after all of this effort, after dealing with a growling stomach, you'll reach the same conclusion as this man. I don't think that day of fasting helped me one bit. Well, I've been given this this task of preaching on fasting, and I hope to lay out a biblical vision for fasting, that fasting is a good thing, and it it has God-given potential to help us in our church in so many different ways. Before I get into that, I just want to clear the deck and talk about what fasting is not. What fasting is not. Well, Christian fasting is not a health fad. Well, in our consumer-driven culture, you can often see the pendulum swing to the other direction with minimalism. Now people are talking about skipping a meal for, simply for health reasons. Now fasting does have potential side health benefits, but that's not what fasting is about. Fasting is not a political weapon. Sometimes on the news you'll hear about these political activists where they go on a hunger strike to draw attention to their cause. You might recall Mahatma Gandhi a number of years ago who was an activist in India. And in his culture, a creditor could collect a debt by shaming, by only shaming the debtor. So what the creditor would do was that they would sit in front of the debtor's house, the person who owed him money, and they would not eat. And then the debtor would be shamed into paying up their debt. 
And this worked for Gandhi. And his picture made the headlines as you saw this picture of this frail man cheerfully going without food for the sake of principle. Well, fasting is not a political weapon. Fasting is also not a denial of God's good creation. Some people might be thinking, well, if you're to be truly spiritual, you have to be a monk or live in a monastery or take a vow of poverty. But God's word says that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received uh, with thanksgiving, made holy by the word of God in prayer. Finally, fasting is not a substitute for the Spirit, for the Holy Spirit. Paul has to correct, rebuke some Christians in the book of Colossians and Galatians because they were relying on works of the law, on man-made rules, instead of relying on the Holy Spirit. They were making up these rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which had the appearance of wisdom, but it was really a reliance on their own flesh and not a reliance on the Holy Spirit. Fasting is not a substitute for the Holy Spirit because if we want to fix spiritual problems, we need the Holy Spirit. So that's a couple things that fasting is not. But what exactly is fasting then? Well, Donald Whitney defines fasting this way. Fasting is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. Okay? Fasting is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. It's voluntary because it's not forced. No one's going to force you to give up a meal or give up something this week. But it's, it's, as, as the people of God, as Christians, as disciples of Christ, it's our joy and delight. And even the normal pattern for God's people, just like it's a normal pattern for God's people to pray or to read God's word. It's abstinence from food, meaning temporarily we give up food. And here's the most important part. You've got to get this part. For spiritual purposes. For spiritual purposes. The goal is for God and for other people. Thoughts for food during their time for fasting ought to lead us, prompt us, spur us on to, towards thoughts for God. And as Tim mentioned earlier, fasting doesn't, has, doesn't have to be just food-related. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, now, Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. There are many bodily functions which are right and normal and perfectly legitimate, but which for special peculiar reasons in certain circumstances should be controlled. And that's the problem with the man in our introduction. There was no spiritual purpose behind his fasting. His denial of food really became a denial of God's good creation because there was no spiritual purpose behind it. And what was supposed to, for this man, create a spiritual hunger for God only created hunger for food. And sadly, that was the exact opposite intended effect of fasting, which was supposed to create a hunger and a desire for God. But that's not the way it's been all throughout redemptive history. Fasting has accomplished Huge, awesome, great purposes for God's people, accomplishing great spiritual purposes. We can't mention all the examples throughout Scripture, but I want to lay out just a couple. King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, when faced with a national crisis, the country was about to be invaded by this huge, powerful enemy force, he declared a national fast to seek God's help and mercy. 
Now, after the Babylonian exile, when faced with genocide of the entire Jewish race, Queen Esther, along with others, went on a three-day fast. They abstained from food and water for three days. And 70 years after the exile, when the exile was coming to an end, the prophet Daniel fasted and prayed for God's mercy. And when he saw that the returned exiles were in trouble and that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down, the gates were burned with fire, Nehemiah fasted and prayed for God's mercy. Fast forward a couple hundred years. Jesus begins his ministry with fasting. You might recall our message on Matthew chapter 4. And then in Matthew chapter 6, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, we'll get there in a couple weeks, he says, when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast, when you fast. Not if, but when. And then the first global missions movement was launched with fasting in Acts chapter 13. The church at Antioch was fasting and praying, and then the Holy Spirit told the church to set aside Paul and Barnabas for the missions work he had called them to. And so contrary to what we saw in the introduction, fasting has great benefit. Things happen. History is changed. Churches are planted. Generations upon generations affected for eternity because of fasting. So fasting is a good thing. It's a tool that our God has given to his people so that we could seek more of God, more of him, more of his presence, more of his power. But it's possible to do a good thing, fasting, the wrong way. And I want us to look at some of the pitfalls that God's people could fall into as we think about fasting. It's possible to take something like a spiritual discipline, a good spiritual discipline like fasting, a good thing, but you can do it for the wrong reasons. And that's the problem we see in Isaiah chapter 58. So if you don't already have your Bibles open when Emil read from Isaiah 58, you know, turn, turn back to Isaiah 58. We're going to see that the nation of Judah, they were doing a good thing. Fasting is a good thing, but they were doing it the wrong way. So let's look at chapter 58, verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. So Isaiah is speaking to religious people, people who uh, God describes as spiritual. They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. They delight to draw near to God. These are people who go to church. These are people who do spiritual things. They seem genuine. They seem committed and devoted. But God has a different assessment. Let's look at verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. So there are three problems we see with fasting that are laid out in Isaiah chapter 58. And number one, they were self-centered. They were self-centered. Fasting is good, but it becomes evil when you seek your own pleasure and oppress other people. And the root of the problem was that there was no God in the picture as these people were trying to fast. It was only self. These people say, oh, we have humbled ourselves. But in reality, they were self-centered and proud. You don't oppress, you don't take advantage of other people because you're humbled. You do that because you're proud, you think you're better than other people, and you're self-centered. And verse 4, let's go on. 
Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. The people of Judah were deceived into thinking, well, God will see my fasting and he will overlook my fighting. It's, take a step back, if you think about it, it's, it's comical almost. You have these people who are fasting, they're religious, they're trying to do the right thing. Uh, ultimately self-centered though. They're self-centered as they go into this fasting. So as they give up their food, they're getting hungrier, they're getting crankier, they're getting more irritable, and they're getting even more self-centered as they fast. And that's the temptation we face for those of us who come to church on Sunday. We worship on Sunday. The temptation is for us to ignore God and live the way we want Monday through Saturday. And John Piper writes, no worship, no preaching, no singing, no praying, no fasting, however intense or beautiful, that leaves us harsh with our workers on Monday or contentious with our spouses at home or self-indulgent is true God-pleasing worship. So that was the first problem. They were self-centered. The second is that they were manipulating God. If you go back to verse 3, they say, why have we fasted and you see it not? The people were fasting as a way to coerce, to manipulate God. The people of Judah were fasting like their Canaanite neighbors were fasting. You see, in Canaanite pagan religion, they believed that their gods could be appeased. They could be manipulated through religious rituals. They do certain things and they can expect certain results from these gods. For example, you guys might recall from 1 Kings chapter 18, there's a throwdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And there's a challenge between Yahweh and Baal to see which god would answer with fire from heaven. And whichever god did that would be recognized as the true god. Well, do you remember what the prophets of Baal did? Well, they called upon Baal. They prayed, they limped, they cut themselves, they danced around the altar in order to force, to somehow convince or manipulate or coerce Baal to answer with fire. Well, true Israelite religion is the opposite. God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he moves to create, he moves to redeem, and God's people respond by faith. God's people, we don't do things to coerce God. I mean, think how silly and ridiculous that is to this idea that we might coerce God into creating us or coerce God into redeeming us. No, God has acted and we respond by faith. So fasting isn't a political weapon. We're not Gandhi on a hunger strike trying to get God to do stuff for us. Fasting isn't a religious weapon. God can't be manipulated or coerced into doing our bidding. Because he is God, he is God, and we are not. We answer to him, he doesn't answer to us. And if you get this wrong, then we're going to do fasting and every other spiritual activity the wrong way, with the wrong motivation. And this is the point that Isaiah underscores with with irony and even sarcasm. Look at verse 5. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? So the third problem is that they were putting on a show. They were putting on a show. 
the people were, were working hard to put on a show. They were bowing down. They were spreading sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth, that wasn't something commanded by the law, but it's something that people did, right? They put on this black sackcloth over them. They took off their normal clothes. And it was something that they did when they were grieved by their sin or grieved by suffering. You might recall Job put on sackcloth and ashes, you know, when he was enduring great suffering. But it was an it outward expression of inward contrition. Do you remember the repentance of the city of Nineveh in the book of Jonah? You saw the, from the greatest to the least, from the king on the throne all the way down, even the animals, they fasted and prayed. They put on sackcloth and ashes because they were genuinely broken and sorry and grieved by how they had sinned against God. But that's not what's, what's happening here. The people were putting on sackcloth and ashes, but they were really just putting on a show. They were pretending to be serious, but God sees right through their heart. We might be able to fool some people some of the time, but we can never fool God. And this is what Jesus condemns in Matthew chapter 6, this whole idea of putting on a show, fasting to impress other people. See, the hypocrite will look, go out of his way to look gloomy, to look miserable so he could be seen by others. You know, he wants others to see how much that they're giving up, how miserable they are giving up food, and how spiritual they look. But it's really just a show. They're not doing it for God. They're doing it to impress other people. They're doing it for a show. But the test of true fasting, the test of true worship, really, is our love for God and love for others. The test for true fasting is our love for God and love for others. But in Isaiah 58, we saw that they were self-centered. They were manipulating God, and they were putting on a show. So Judah failed the test. But we can learn from Judah. And Isaiah corrects and rebukes the people of, the people of Judah, and we can get a picture for what true fasting is like. True fasting would be the opposite of those things. So number one, true fasting isn't self-centered, it's selfless selfless. What's the greatest commandment? It's for us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And we as religious people, for those of us who love the gospel, who trust in Christ alone as the only way of salvation, our love for our neighbor, our love for people around us, our love for our spouses, our children, Co-workers is, is an indicator for our love for God. The horizontal reveals the vertical. It's one thing to say, I love God, but how we treat other people will show if we really love ourselves, our money, our power, or something else more than we love God. Our love for our neighbor is an indicator for whether we truly love God or we love something else even more. And Isaiah lays out this vision for true fasting. It's a, it's a vision of selfless fasting. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. God calls his people to stop the wickedness, to stop the oppression, and to have compassion on those in need. 
Because how we treat other human beings matter. It matters whether or not we love our neighbor. It matters whether or not we turn from wickedness and oppression and care for the hungry, the poor, the naked, and work towards true justice in our society. John Oswald writes, only twice, two times, only twice in the Old Testament does God command persons to fast. But in hundreds of places, he commands his people to treat other people, especially those weaker than they, with respect, justice, and kindness. So here, God tells the people that if they want to stop doing something, they can stop oppressing the poor. So we as Risen Hope Church, if we're going to stop doing something such as eating during, during this fast, we need to make sure that we don't mistreat others, we don't oppress the poor, Because if we stop eating and continue mistreating others, oppressing others, that's an insult to God. And the irony, you can just sense this irony here, that the the poor are hungry, well, because they're poor and have no money to buy food, but the well-off are hungry too because they're fasting. John Oswald continues, in fact, they fast for the very opposite reason of what God intends for his people. Instead of abandoning themselves and their needs into the hands of God, and instead of giving themselves away to others, their religious activities have become self-serving. So true true fasting isn't self-serving. It isn't self-centered. True fasting is selfless. And when we walk into this period of fasting, this season of fasting for our church, either this week or future down the road, As we do it with a selfless heart, that is the heart of Christ. Everything he did was for the sake of God and others. He came and paid the ultimate sacrifice, a selfless act of sacrifice, by giving up his life as a ransom for many to redeem us that we might ultimately live to the praise of his glorious grace. Here are some simple and practical ways for us to make sure our fasting is selfless. These are some suggestions. You can, you can take the food or money that you would have used or spent on yourself and give to others when you're fasting. As a church, we're collecting food for the Upper Darby Food Pantry. There's bins in the lobby. But not only can you eat less so you can share with others, you can wear less expensive clothes so you can clothe the naked. You can support our mission partners through prayer and finances. You can commit yourself to racial and economic justice. Because true fasting isn't self-centered, it's selfless. And number two, it isn't manipulating God, but surrendering to him. It isn't manipulating God, but surrendering to him. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, And speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. God calls his people, calls us even now to surrender to him, surrender to his will. Notice the logic in these verses. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am, if... Now, here's a big if. If you take away oppression, if you show compassion, in other words, if 
you surrender to him and his will and his purposes for you. See, we don't fast to force God's hand to do our bidding. When done right, fasting is this outward expression of inward humility, inward surrender. It's an expression of saying to God, not my will, but yours be done. Not getting God to do what we want, but letting God get what he wants out of our lives. Don Whitney writes, Any blessing which is bestowed by the Father upon his undeserving children must be considered an act of grace. We fail to appreciate the mercy of the Lord if we think that by our doing something, we have forced or even coerced God. We should use it, fasting, we should use it as a scriptural means whereby we are melted into a more complete realization of the purposes of the Lord in our life, church, community, and nation. See, we're not Gandhi trying to force a a certain government to change its mind. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We're fasting as a way for our hearts to be melted into the purposes of our Lord for our life, our church, our community, our nation. The test of true fasting is our love for God and love for others. And number three, it's not putting on a show, but delighting in God above all else. And this is really the most important goal and trajectory of our fasting. We're not trying to put on a show. We're not fasting to impress other people so they can think how spiritual we are. It's really the goal is that we might delight in God above everything else. And this is the heart of the matter, that fasting, when we choose to give up something like food, that should intensify our hunger for God. Let's look at verse 14. Skip, skip down to verse 14. Then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice that key phrase, then you shall take delight in the Lord. So when we fast, we say in the words of John Piper, food is good, but God is better. Food is good, God's good creation, but God is better. So in our church, upcoming church-wide prayer and fasting, we want to desire, we want to seek, we want more of God. We want to delight in God above everything else. And fasting can take that desire for more of God and fan it into a flame. And fasting can really kill two birds with one stone. We can feed that flame, that passion, that hunger for God, and also starve our sinful flesh. Fasting can be that expression of repentance where we're turning from certain things, even good things like food, so that we can turn to the best thing, God. And for those of you who aren't Christians, we're so grateful that you're here. Uh, We want you to know you're always welcome to join us in our worship services. But we, we want you to hear the heart of God. We want you to know the heart of God, that he throws his arms open for his salvation, for all who would turn from their sins, turn from trusting in yourself, and turn to Christ, turn to the Savior. God, in his mercy, in his love for us broken and undeserving sinners, came in the person of Jesus Christ, came as a human being. He lived a perfect life that none of us could live, obeying all of God's laws all the time in thought, word, and deed, all of God's commandment. And then lived and then died the death we deserved upon the cross. When we broke God's law, Jesus 
paid our fine by dying on the cross. And then after three days, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And now he welcomes you to come to him, come to him for forgiveness, come to him for eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel. And we want you, you know, as we look at Joel 2, 12 and 13, to hear the heart of God for all people. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend, tear your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And our goal as we fast, as we choose to give up food or something else for a season, is that we might turn from certain delights and turn to delighting in God above all else. Our God, who is grace, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to us in Jesus Christ. To, to delight in our God, our great God, who is God of gods and Lord of lords, who is the great, the mighty, the awesome God. Our God who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He is God and there is no other. He is God and there is none like him. And when we fast, we say we want this God more and more. John Piper writes, um, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. I invite you to turn from the dulling effects of food and the dangers of idolatry and say with some simple fast, this much, O God, I want you. So when we fast, yes, we we recognize that God's gifts are good. We enjoy God's gifts, but we enjoy God even more. And when we fast, we, we, we say, yes, the pleasures of the earth are no match for the glory of God. When we fast, we say no to the table of the world, the dulling effects of food, the dangers of idolatry, and say yes to more of God. When we fast, we say with our, not just with our soul, but with our body, whom do we have in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what we can say when we fast. There's a couple ways that we can apply this together as a church family. So we have this upcoming church-wide fast. It's voluntary. We don't want anyone to feel like they're pressured into fasting. But there's a variety of different options. You can, during this period, you can fast one meal. You can fast one meal per day. Or you can, you can even fast all meals. If you are new to fasting, I encourage you to start small. Don't go for a food and water fast for 40 days. But if you are accustomed to fasting, uh, just remember to stay hydrated, stay warm, get plenty of rest. If you do fast more than one meal, that first day can often be the hardest where your body is getting rid of toxins. But once you get past that, there's a calmness and clarity where that allows powerful prayer. 
And when you break a multi-meal fast, you know, do it with fruits, veggies, and salads and liquids. Don't load up on bread and meat. And as mentioned earlier, it doesn't have to be food. It could be a, a time of just giving up entertainment, the internet, TV. The test of true fasting is our love for God and love for others. And when you choose by faith to fast in some way, use that time to seek more of God, more of his kingdom, more of his work in our lives and the lives of other people. You seek more of God by devoting that time that you would be eating or surfing the web or watching TV. You devote that time to his word and to prayer. As you guys leave, as Tim mentioned, we're going to be leaving you a prayer list of specific things uh, we want to bring before the throne of grace. We want to ask God to change our lives, to, to increase and our impact, our witness at home and around the world. We want to invite you to pray for our mission partners, such as the Baines who are heading off to Jamaica or the Vicinoviches who are planning a church in Croatia. We want to pray, ask you to pray for the work of God as, uh, for our church. Pray for our sermon series through the book of Matthew. Pray for the salvation of our children. Pray for boldness and effectiveness and lasting fruit from our evangelism. Pray for our unity in the midst of diversity. And pray for our nation, for our leaders. And as you pray, may the Lord take your heart and may it be melted more and more into the complete realizations of God's purposes. Because true fasting isn't, it's not self-centered, it's selfless. It's not manipulating God but surrendering to his will. It's not putting on a show, but delighting in God above all else. You know, as we're, we're talking about this season of fasting among the pastoral team, uh, it was something that I, I, I got excited about. There was a, there was a season in my life uh, where I fasted once a week. It was Friday lunches, and God met me in powerful ways. And this, it was a time that I looked forward to every week, this, this Friday lunch, setting aside time just to immerse myself uh, in his word, uh, taking time to pray. It was a time where I could just drink deeply from the fountain of life and feast on God's word, where I could realize in a, in a powerful, tangible way that man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of our God. And I also used that time when I was fasting Fridays during lunch just to pray Pray for a powerful move of God in my life, in the life of our church, in the area of evangelism. Evangelism. I can remember a number of years ago, uh, in our city, Austin, Texas, we have this event, an annual Christmas time event called the Trail of Lights. We have thousands of Christmas lights, beautiful light displays uh, strung up, and people from all over, thousands, tens of thousands of people would, would come to the city park to to, to walk through this trail of lights, to enjoy this beautiful light display. And it was such an awesome opportunity uh, to share the gospel with people, to give out gospel tracts, to talk to people about Jesus. They were coming there. They were, they were there for Christmas. What an awesome opportunity to tell people the true reason, the true meaning of Christmas. And I remember going into this outreach at the trail of, life, trail of lights and, and praying and fasting that God would give me boldness, that God would raise up laborers for his harvest. And I remember seeing God answering prayer in a powerful way, that he stirred people's hearts for evangelism. He gave us 
bold hearts of faith. He stirred people to engage and step out of their comfort zone in street evangelism, doing street evangelism. People whom I would have never expect to do street evangelism, I saw sharing their gospel with, sharing the gospel with strangers. And as we go into this church-wide season, this more of God, that's the desire of us as pastors, that God would meet us as a church, that he would meet us in a powerful way as we fast, as we pray, that we would hunger more and more for God and his kingdom and his purposes to be realized in our lives and the life of our church. And that as we go into fasting, as we choose by faith to seek more and more of God, may we experience in a real way what we wouldn't otherwise experience if we hadn't fasted, that God's steadfast love, that God himself is better than life. He's better than life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know where people are at as we're thinking about fasting, but I pray that you would do a work in our lives, that we would hunger for more of you, that we would, yes, receive your good gifts, receive the good gift of food, but hunger for more of you, Lord, delighting in you above everything else, and that as we seek you, Lord, help us to fast in a way that honors you, in a selfless way, in a way that surrenders to you, in a way that delights in you above all else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.